The National Library building in Canberra is a grand structure on the south shore of Lake Burley Griffin. But that is just the tip of the archival iceberg, though. If all the library's physical items were lined up, they'd span 300 kilometres. But the lease on the property where many library holdings are stored expires in January 2026. And then, of course, there's the billions of digital files as well as 55,000 hours of oral history and folklore recordings that also need to be maintained as part of our digital national treasure, Trove, which makes uh, over 280 million cultural heritage items accessible to people across Australia and around the world. All in all, that means that the National Library of Australia is facing a funding shortfall from July 2023. Marie-Louise Ayres is the Director-General of the NLA and she joins us to discuss reconciling her vision for the library's future with the challenges of securing resources for the library. Uh, Marie-Louise, welcome to Sunday Extra. Good morning, Julian, and it's a beautiful morning here on Noonawal and Nambri country. Fantastic. Um, not so fantastic, though, to read in your last annual report the phrase critical storage risks. That seems like a pretty concerning thing uh, for a national library. Could you please explain for us what those critical storage risks are and what's needed to address them? Um, yes, Julian, as you said, our physical collection is very large. It runs to, you know, approaching 300 kilometres. So that's from driving from here to Sydney, you'd be driving past lines of books and manuscript boxes. The physical collection also grows every year. It grows by about two kilometres a year. And under our legal obligations under the National Library Act and the Copyright Act, we must continue to grow the collection. So finding additional storage for the collection is always an issue. Most of our collection is actually stored in the building by the lake, as you suggested. We have two other repositories or stores nearby that are completely full. And you're right that we also have 18 kilometres, which is a lot of material stored currently uh, with the National Archives of Australia and they need that space back. So yes, we are facing a critical problem for that 18 kilometres. We don't have a solution for where to store it. Uh, there's about 10 to 15,000 user requests from that material every year. So it's not a collection that you can just put away somewhere and, and set and forget. And we've been working actively with government on having that really immediate need met, as well as meeting our longer term storage needs so that we don't keep hitting storage cliffs like this. Uh, does a building that holds these uh, national resources have particular requirements that I assume are costly requirements? Um, actually, Julian, to, to build a building to kind of store the collection properly is, um, is you know, relatively modest. And in order to store this 18 kilometres, we could extend our existing um, Hume repository, which, which we own, um, for in the order of 11 or $12 million. So we're not talking about another marble National Library building. What we need is a giant box that's very tall and can have very tall shelving and that has really excellent um, thermal properties. Our existing property out at Hume um, does not require 
uh, air conditioning or heating because it is so efficiently built. So we need an efficient building that has really tall um, shelving that our cherry pickers can get to and that we can get back to the library in a reasonable time. So it's we need a really simple but very large box. Mm. Uh, and it's not just cherry picking. You, you do sometimes have to discard some cherries as well. I know you've got a deselection and disposal policy. Um, what sort of criteria go into deciding what you uh, keep and is there a risk that if you can't maintain um, or, or get your nice big box that you'd have to increase your um, disposal policy? Um, sure, Julia. And I have to say, when I said cherry pickers, I meant that literally. I know, I understood that. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, really tall shelving. Uh, but look, we do have a, a deaccessioning uh, policy. And look, it's it's the, in the order of things that we always, there'll be a few things every year that um, don't belong in our collection um, that we've got duplicates of. That's been work that's been ongoing. Mm. At this stage, we don't have any intention of deaccessioning in any major way from the collection. We have looked at whether we could do so, uh, particularly for this 18 kilometres we're talking about, but we can't see any way to do that without really damaging uh, Australians' access to material that in many cases is only held here. So we need to have that policy in place. Um, we'd have to be in a very, very tight fix before we'd think about it. Uh, and in fact, if we don't have uh, suitable storage uh, for the collection, we would be more inclined to put it all into closed commercial storage where it wouldn't be accessible, but hopefully better days in the future would mean we could pull it out again. So deaccessioning in any large-scale way is definitely not in our minds at the moment. But certainly the connection between funding and accessibility is really, really stark there. A absolutely, absolutely. Um, you, you don't just need to be able to store a collection. Um, we retrieve um, nearly 100,000 times a year from this collection so it's not like an art gallery or a museum where you might be moving a few hundred items a year to put into your galleries and exhibitions. It's entirely driven by what the end user wants, the person who comes into the reading room or asks for an interlibrary loan, or of course, increasingly, it's driven by what we are deciding to digitise from the collection and are working with the community to digitise. So it's a living, working collection used every single day. On RN, we're speaking with Marie Louise Ayres, Director General of the National Library of Australia, and and Marie Louise, we we know that you need uh, what upwards of ten million dollars for a very large storage box, but also uh, the library is facing a funding shortfall from July this year because fourteen million dollars worth of short-term government funding lapses. What sort of a proportion of the library's funding does that represent, and what was it used for? Uh, well, yes, look, it's, it's quite a significant proportion. It's more than a fifth, more than 20% of our operational funding. So that is not small mm. in anybody's terms. Um, look, that short-term funding over the last uh, few years, um, since uh, the beginning of 2017, we've been using short-term funding of one kind or another to uh, maintain Trove, to keep the, the Trove infrastructure running. That's been really important. Um, we have 
did have some funding from the previous government also to uh, do some digitisation from our collection in order to encourage philanthropists to give to that process. And that's been quite successful. It's been used for absolutely essential building works. Um, you know, our building is, is ageing. We're about to start replacing our windows, every one of which leaked when we had a big rain event on the 4th of January. Oh so it's really fundamental parts of our business. It's not just Trove. It's everything that we do for our entire business um, is really has been underpinned by short-term funding over the last few years. And it's interesting that you mentioned uh, those short that short-term funding designed to garner philanthropic funding. I know that in 2018, the library announced the name of raising $30 million uh, in philanthropic funding over um, a decade. Uh, what is the library's funding mix? Is, is it increasingly dependent on non-government funding? Uh, it's always been a, a mix, Julian. So uh, government provides us with operational funding, so that's just to keep our business running. It also provides us with funding to develop our collection, and that part of our funding is actually sufficient for our needs. It's our operational funding that's, that's falling short. We've always had partnerships. So, for example, libraries around Australia pay a membership fee to use library services underneath Trove. That brings between three and a half four million dollars of revenue in. We've always worked with partners around the country, other libraries and institutions who pay us to digitise content that's of mutual interest. So all of that content in, in Trove is very much the result of partnerships. It's been government funding, it's from other institutions, and now it is certainly increasingly from philanthropic uh, dollars from really generous individuals who've helped us with our ambition to make the most important parts of our collection available to the entire population. And I know that you love all parts of your library collection equally, but Trove is uh, something that's really attracted uh, much affection and um, uh, praise internationally as well as nationally. Could you tell us a little about the, the building up of uh, Australia's National Digital Library and what's needed to maintain and expand that from here? Sure. Well, Julian, the first thing to say is Trove didn't come out of nowhere. Um, we've been operating in this nationally collaborative, you know, electronic world since 1981. So, you know, that's more than 40 years that we've been operating mm. um, a network that connects Australian institutions together to make it easier for all Australians to find collections really wherever they're held. So it's got a really long history. From the early 2000s, we started to develop develop systems like Picture Australia and Music Australia. Then in 2006, we started digitising newspapers. We desperately sought government funding and research funding to start that process. Nobody would give us any money, so we decided we had to start it anyway because we knew how important it could be. That's been very successful, as you know. And in 2009, we brought all of those things together uh, into, into what's now called Trove. Um, it didn't stand still. So in 2018, 
uh, in another world first, one among many, we were able to make our entire Australian web archive dating back to 1996 fully text searchable through Trove. And more recently, we've worked with all of the state and territory libraries to have a single national system so that publishers can deposit born digital books, journals, newspapers, all of those things um, digitally. And quite a few of those are immediately available through Trove. So it hasn't stood still. It's developed over a long time. To maintain Trove in its current form, which people know and love, does require, in addition to the funding that we receive from partners, $10 million a year just to maintain the infrastructure. That's not to add more content in, it's to keep the machines on the second floor of the library and all the people who make them work running so that we can continue to deliver that service. So baseline, around about $10 million um, requirement on top of our partner funding. But we're not about standing still. We've never been interested in what's easy or what's short-term or resting on our laurels. We're always looking forward. So we have a much bigger vision for Trove that would make, uh, make it possible to manage and provide access to even more digital formats that would make it possible for cultural institutions across Australia to use that underlying infrastructure for their own purposes and that would make it possible for us to generate far more value from the collections that we already have, especially through applying AI and machine learning to really big data sets. So we have a big vision for Trove set out in our Trove strategy. It would need a big additional investment to, to lift from where we are to where we're going, but we will keep our eye on that prize and continue to find ways to work towards it. It's fair to say, and perhaps not a surprise, that on the RN text line, there's a lot of love for Trove. One listener just texted in, Trove really is a treasure trove, a brilliant initiative that has to be maintained. Uh, Mari Louise, could you give us some examples of how important uh, our digital record of the past Trove has become for research into current issues? Yes, look, I think probably one of the first things that I would talk about would be um, actually in the First Nations space. Um, so um, it's uh, it's interesting and it's fantastic from our perspective that use of Trove is higher among Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people than it is among the rest of the population. Yeah. So, for example, it's really popular and well used in Groot Island and Sherbrooke. Now, who would who would think that? So we you ask ourselves why. It's really because we've been able to make all of these historical sources, you know, the everyday bread and butter of newspapers, um, plus books and journals and pictures and oral histories available so that individuals and communities can do their own research for their own purposes and tell their own stories. And I think given where we are right at this moment in terms of um, First Nations saying it's our story, we are going to tell our story, we are going to tell the stories of, you know, our ancestors, our past heroes, the activists who've gone before us. That's a really important contemporary use of historic materials. So that's probably the one that is upper uh, top of mind for me. Mm -hmm. um, climate change is another really big example. Our resources have been used by climate scientists for a long time. And again, it's, it's not just weather data, which you might think about. Um, at the moment, we're working with another government department to digitise the long-running journey or journal of the Australian 
a soil network. Okay, so you and I think soil, what does that tell us? For climate scientists and ecologists, having the backstory of what's been happening to Australian soils is a really big part of understanding where we are now. So it's not about nostalgia. It's not about looking back into history and thinking, you know, that was then and and, and looking at it and thinking, isn't that nice and shiny? Um, it's also about current day, uh, current day issues. Mm. And I suppose the next big issue on my mind is um, if we think about where we are, Australia at the moment, this amazing thing called Australia. Australia, incredibly diverse, 50% of us born overseas or our parents were, more than 20% of us speaking a language other than English at home. And we have this really successful democracy with flaws, but really successful. Our collections are full of documentation about all the big and small processes for how we came to be the free and liberal democracy that we are now. We think they're among our most important collections and actually we're focused on getting those out to the Australian people over the next few years. Mm. All, all of that is fascinating, and particularly the sort of over-representation of uh, research from Indigenous communities. But, um, Marie-Louise, I was uh, surprised, I must admit, to read that digital visits in the last sort of reporting period were actually lower than in previous uh, years. Why is that? Yeah, look, there's a few explanations, but what I will actually say, um, Julia, is that uh, visits to our digital collections of such as such, um, you know, haven't actually dropped. So there's, you know, there's always statistics and t- statistics. One part of it is that um, Google appears to be indexing less of Trove's content than it used to. Mm. So many people, of course, who find something in Trove um, don't start in Trove, they start in Google. Um, look, I was by the shores of Lake George yesterday and we found a plaque about the death of a family in a boating accident in 1958. And of course, my husband who's with me Google's about the accident. You know, what's the first thing he's taken to? He's taken from Google uh, two stories about uh, about the death of those people in Trove. So, um, m- making sure that we can get our content as much of it indexed by Google as possible is important. But they're a big multinational country, uh, company, and even a national institution doesn't have a lot of sway with them. So that's work in progress. Absolutely. Um, I know one of the library's priorities is diversifying the records. It keeps, and you've mentioned First Nations Australians in particular, but there's also been a focus on engaging with Chinese Australian and uh, Fijian Australian communities. Uh, Could you tell us about that? Yes, look, this is really about um, our determination to make sure that our collections truly reflect the diversity of our country because we will not be useful to the Australia of the future unless we're building the collections now that represent uh, who we are. So we chose to work first with these two communities as a a pilot, really, um, of really intentional outreach to those communities um, to ask them to tell tell their story through oral histories, um, and that's been very, very successful. Um, uh, We've built a great oral history collection, many in language, 
just in English. Um, and that also then leads to you do an oral history with somebody and that then might lead to there's an important festival, let's collect some photographic documentation. And then somebody tells you about their great auntie who was a pioneer of their community um, and actually they've got a suitcase of her records under a bed somewhere. And then you realise, these communities realise, oh, we've got all these newsletters and publications and we actually haven't been giving to a library and they think we're important enough, we'd like to give them to them. So that's worked really, really well. We would love to ramp that up. Um, similarly, we'd love to be working with more than a small number of First Nations communities. That will take us decades at our current rate. Um, you know, the current resources we can put into it really do limit how many communities we can work with. Mm -hmm. But we're here for the long term, Julian. We've never been about what's easy or what's short term. Uh, we've always about doing been about doing the impossible and what other people don't imagine and sticking to it over the long term. So I think this determination to make our collection really represented, or as I sometimes call it, serving the underserved, is it, it is really what drives Clearly very, very important. Mm. Uh, many challenges, uh, Marie-Louise, that you're facing. I think I had a, a tab of just over $20 million and you didn't even put the price tag on what it would, it would take to expand. <laughs> Tro, we've only got about 30 seconds left, but what's your relationship with the Treasurer like? Uh, well, our relationship with government is um, is very cordial. We work uh, really well all the time with our colleagues in the Office for the Arts. I have met with our Minister, Tony Burke, about our needs, and I believe that our immediate needs, at least, um, are very well understood. And I'm really hopeful about the upcoming budget, right. and particularly to move beyond short-term to longer-term funding. Absolutely. That would be fantastic. Well, thank you very much for speaking with us on RN today, uh, Marie-Louise Ayres. Thank you very much, Julian. And Marie-Louise is the Director-General of the National Library of Australia and with a very big agenda. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.